Well, what a joy it was to sing with you this morning. It seemed there was an extra measure of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And singing is a unique part in a worship service, isn't it? When the, when the body of Christ as one man before God rises to sing his praises together to make a common confession. It's an incredible thing. What a gift. Thank you again to those who lead us in music week by week. <clears throat> the year 1976 stands out as a uh, notable year in my life. It was the year of the United States Bicentennial Celebration at the height of the Cold War. I was just coming to a rational mind at the age of 11. And I will never forget sitting in front of our television alongside my father watching the 1976 Olympic decathlon. American Bruce Jenner <clears throat> was in an athletic dogfight with the Russian Nikolai Avalov, who happened to be the world record holder in the decathlon. And sports were a big deal in my home. My father was a coach. He had been a college athlete. And if the wits did anything, it was sport. And I will never forget the sense of pride and the inspiration that I encountered in watching Jenner eventually defeat Avalov. It was American against Russian. It was athletics. It was gritty. And I'll never forget my dad explaining to me the history of Jim Thorpe and the idea that, that the Olympic decathlete was in fact the greatest athlete on the planet. And you can imagine my dismay in 2015 when that same Bruce Jenner announced to the world that he was a she. Childhood heroes die hard. I remember thinking to myself, Olympic gold medalists, world record holders don't do this kind of thing. A woman cannot win the men's decathlon. Apparently they can. History channels this day in history, as I looked it up online, the headline reads, Caitlyn Jenner wins Olympic decathlon. On July 30th, I'm quoting from the article, 1976, American Caitlyn Jenner, who was competing as Bruce Jenner, wins gold in the men's decathlon at the Montreal Olympics. Jenner's 8,617 points sets a world record in the event. Now, if we're to believe that headline and buy the culture's storyline, then a woman was the best man in the 1976 decathlon, a woman defeated the great Nikolai Avalov for the title of the world's greatest athlete. Beloved, this is the world in which we live. Today marks the first day, the first Sunday in Canada where it is illegal to preach a message like this. All around the country, many pulpits will be preaching on the subject today of biblical sexuality. 
And this comes by way of specific request from our brothers in Canada. And I'm quoting from their request directly. Quote, on the first day or the first Lord's Day after Bill C-4, which I explained last week, and if you want to get that, you can find it on our website. On the first Lord's Day after Bill C-4 comes into effect, please publicly preach a sermon that specifically proclaims the biblical truth that homosexuality and transgenderism are serious sins condemned by the law of God that exclude a sinner from salvation without repentance. Also in this sermon, please proclaim the Savior, Jesus Christ, in his atoning death and life-giving Holy Spirit as a perfect and complete Savior to all those in sexual sin. Homosexuality and transgenderism are serious sins, as are all sexual sins, as are all sins. And they will, in fact, exclude the sinner from eternal life. Beloved, love says that kind of thing. Love warns. And love also preaches the gospel. It occurs to me, if you, if, if you were in my shoes and if you had gotten this request from your brethren in Canada, would you be preaching this sermon today? And I think it's worth thinking about because at an individual level, it does apply to you, right? Because what I may do from here, you're going to have to do in the workplace or not. You're going to have to do at family gatherings or not. You're going to have to do among friends or not. You'll either warn and preach the gospel of Christ or you'll cower and shrink back, fearing whatever it is that we fear. And we'll be unfaithful to that gospel and unfaithful to Christ and ultimately unloving friends because we do not speak what needs to be spoken. And we all know the cost, don't we, at some level. The cost hasn't come home to roost yet. I mean, we, we don't like to be unliked. I get that. But a day is coming. Love does warn and love preaches, and it is wonderfully true that Jesus Christ is, in fact, a complete Savior of sinners. The crucified and risen Christ will forgive and will cleanse any and all sinners of every sin. No matter how defiling, if that sinner will but repent and turn from themselves to looking at Christ in faith. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again this morning, he sends it forth by way of commandment and call to each and every sinner that you would turn and be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. But it's important for us to understand this beyond just an individual level. We need to understand that there is more afoot here than simply people and their preferences. This isn't just a, a matter of individuals and their same-sex attraction or individuals who, who feel disjointed from whatever sex God has made them. 
And while we love and we respect everyone, while we want to preach the gospel and warn every man, we cannot, in the midst of this, simply live and let live. That would be an unfaithful posture before the Lord. And it would be unfruitful as far as the gospel is concerned. Here's what's important to understand. The transgender issue, the issue of the normalization of homosexuality and gay marriage and the, the rampant immorality that we see in our culture sexually, all of these hedonistic pursuits are also humanistic philosophies. And there is an undercurrent, there is, there is something moving here that is opposed to the truth of God. It is, it is wanting to, to, to render God a non-entity. We must understand that these things are rooted in an ideology and the ideology is an agenda and that agenda is really dangerous. And it is very far-reaching. It is adamantly opposed to the Bible. It is anti-Christ. And it is, it is against all that is true and right. And it is coming like a freight train down the tracks with all the weight of society behind it. It's part of a greater scheme where mankind is seeking to simply stiff-arm God and to elude God, to banish God to some dark corner of the universe and prove once and for all that we, we can do quite well without him. And this societal movement, you feel it, is coming, and the, the primary thing that you're going to begin to feel from the get-go is that they're going to want to zip your lip. They're going to go after speech, because there is a facade that the culture is seeking to prop up. And those who don't play along with the facade, who won't buttress the facade, are therefore a danger to that facade. And so this movement has the aim of silencing all opposition. But it goes further than merely silencing you. In fact, the expectation is that you will affirm homosexuality and transgenderism, that you will affirm it in the workplace and in the church and in the classroom and at family gatherings. And you must understand that beyond simply seeking to silence you and get you to affirm these things, they will stop at nothing short of unhesitating endorsement and agreement that all of this is good. And there will be consequences for those who won't play along. And as I've said, those consequences right now are mostly, they'll just cancel you. But that will only go so far. Are we willing? Are we ready? Are you prepared as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to stand firm on the truth, come what may? Last week we saw from Romans 1 that we are under the judgment of God. Not we're in danger of it, but we're under it as a nation. 
that we live in a culture that has refused to acknowledge God or to give thanks to God, to heed the truth of God, and God as a result has given us over to our sin, and the obvious evidence of all of that is the sexual deviance and the depraved thinking of our culture. That is why we see the things that we do, the insanity that exists in the United States today and around the world. And this is what happens when man takes center stage and when man relegates God to some kind of supporting role. James White wrote this, quote, God has been relegated to the periphery and man has taken his place. God's standards of morality become the equivalent of a waxed nose, capable of being shaped according to the whim of the shaper. And we are witnessing what happens when God's absolute authoritative standard is removed and redefined. He's right. And really everything that we're going to talk about this morning is simple. Everything we're going to cover this morning from the text of Scripture is obvious. Everything that we are going to review will be just that for you. It will not be new. It will not be novel. But this is exactly where this ideology is, is coming from, is that they're seeking to attack the authority of Scripture and the, the fundamental interpretation of the Bible as God's Word. Corey referenced this in his prayer, that, that the serpent turned the course of human history with a very simple three-word question, didn't he? Has God said? That's where it always begins. And, and the fact is, God has said. And thankfully, he has said. And the aim of this morning is to address the issue of biblical sexuality broadly. We're just going to sweep across a number of passages and see God's clear teaching regarding marriage and sexuality summarized. And so we are going to begin at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And I want to take you to two definitive seminal texts that are foundational to a biblical theology of sex. And what I really want to do is simply point out three clarifying principles that comprise a biblical sexuality. Three clarifying principles that comprise a biblical sexuality. Or you could think of it this way. At the same time, I want to answer the gender question. I want to answer the marriage question. And I want to address the sex question. These things distill a biblical sexual ethic in its simplest form. And it's not all there is to say by a long shot, but it's enough to clear the fog. Confusing times call for a reaffirmation of fundamental principles. And we need to understand that what's being asserted here is not some dusty, old, antiquated, Victorian era bygone sexuality. What we're doing here is looking at the only sexuality that the Lord Jesus Christ has ever sanctioned. And it is set in stone. Each of these principles will serve to clarify God's original design and really should serve to confront our culture's confusion and their rebellion. 
So turn with me, if you will, to the opening chapter of Genesis. We'll pick up in verse 27 of chapter 1. Father, these things are yours. Sexuality is yours. We are yours. Mankind is yours. Everything in this universe is yours. Lord, we would not be those who resist. But Lord, by your grace and the saving work of the Holy Spirit who gave us a heart of flesh, we are inclined to hear you. We are inclined to obey you. We are inclined, Lord, to apply all that you would teach us. Thank you for hearts that respond that way to the word of God. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who would argue with the truth, we pray that you would soften their heart and give them eyes to see and all that for your glory and their good. Amen. Chapter 1 and verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Note this, male and female, he created them. This is our first clarifying principle. You can jot it down. There are only two sexes. There are only two sexes. And the point that I wanna make here as I will be making all the way along is that each of these things belong to God. They are his possession. And the point here is that gender belongs to God. God has made two sexes. It is his creative design in that he made us this way and it is his designation that there would only be male and female. You can take that to the bank. I don't care what your teacher says. I don't care what your psychologist says. I don't care about all the LGBTQ stuff and all the agenda being pushed. It's that simple. There are two sexes. He made them male and he made them female. Look at chapter two and verse seven. The Lord God then formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Did you note the nouns and the pronouns? Take a look at chapter two and verse 22. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Man and woman are derived from God. Humanity exists because of God. And gender exists because of God. And he assigns that gender to each of his created human beings, to all that live and breathe. It is his design and it is his right to make you as he sees fit and to determine whether you are male or female. Genesis chapter one and back in verse 27, let's look at it again. Note again the nouns and the pronouns. God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's simple enough, right? 
male and female, equal image bearers, equal as co-regents, given the responsibility to, to rule in the garden, equal in value, equal in, in every way, but they are also created male and female distinct and different in their masculinity and in their femininity. God has given each different roles and responsibilities that are completely complementary to one another, and all of this, again, by the design of God. Chapter 2 and verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave, note this, his father and his mother. And again, we, we point this out, but what's unique about that statement is he's talking about Adam and Eve who had neither human father nor human mother, so he's laying down something here for humanity. Something about marriage and something about male and female and something about family, that there would be a mother and there would be a father. And that the husband then should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. All of this again is reaffirmed in chapter 5 and verse Verses 1 and 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. He blessed them and named them man or mankind in the day when they were created. You'll note, in fact, if you turn there in chapter 5, you flip the page to chapter 6 and verse 16, that it is not just humanity that is created in this pattern. Verse 19, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Obviously, the Lord wanted male and female for the purpose of reproduction, so two of every kind of animal go on to the ark so that they can repopulate the earth on the other side of the flood. Beloved, this is the created order. Paul talks of homosexuality in Romans 1 as that which is unnatural. This is what is natural. This is not against nature. This is consistent with nature. This is the created order, male and female. God, think of it with his vast imagination. The God who invented taste and color and all, all living things, all that we look around us and we see, when he in his vast, infinite wisdom thought about how to make the world, he came up with this, male and female. It was the best there could be. All the way through chapter one of Genesis, and God said, and it happened, and it was what? Good. He gets finished with creating female, and he says, now I've got man and I've got woman. It is, behold, it's what? Very good, right. There isn't a better way to do this. 
God created the world just as he wanted it, good to very good, and part of that was the creation of male and female. It was his ideation, it was his designation. This is the way he he flushed it out in creation. Now Jesus reaffirms and reinforces all of this in the Newer Testament. If you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 19, you'll see it. Matthew 19 and verse 3. Some Pharisees came along to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he, Jesus, answered and said, have you not read? Now that's an important statement. He's talking to a group of Pharisees, first of all, who'd spent their entire life memorizing the truth of the Old Testament, right? They, they, they were steeped in these things. This is, definitely, <laughs> this is definitely confrontative. This is a bit of a smackdown. Have you not read? And he, he goes back to the created order to help them understand that the way things were then is the way things are now. This is not culturally determined. No society gets to stand up and say, we're just going to rewrite the rules. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And in light of that truth, Jesus says, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We'll come back to that text in a minute. Adam and Eve had no choice in the matter. Just as you had no choice in the matter. Adam and Eve were created directly by God just as he saw fit. They had no options. And that's important for us to stop for a minute and pause and understand that God defines these things, that God has the right to dictate these kinds of things. God is in charge. We are not. And that's at the core of the issue. That's at the core of the issue. This is the, the, the real rub in this thing is that the idea ideology that I was speaking of earlier, this ideology says we refuse to acknowledge that there is a God or that he has any right over us whatsoever to define anything. All authority and truth rests with me. Again, James White says we are witnessing what happens when God's absolute authoritative standard is removed and redefined. And beloved, this this I'm going to give you some definitions here, and it's it's not because I want you to just you know. I guess I should state it positively. What I want you to be able to do is engage with a culture who believes these things, and we have to understand 
what's happening with the language if we're to, to, to engage it well. So I'm just gonna give you a few definitions here that are important. There is a battle going on for language and language is always very important and you know this, that language changes over time that language can be somewhat complex. To talk about, to say something was cool in the 50s was different than saying something was cool in the 1870s. In the 1870s, somebody would have grabbed a jacket. In the, in the 1950s, somebody would have thought, yeah, that's cool, right? That's just a, a, a fact of language that language changes over time, but we have to be careful as this happens that we don't lose what's precious to us. You take the word love, it's been utterly destroyed by our culture. Love has a biblical definition. Gender has a biblical definition. So we need to pay attention because you understand that if you change the definitions, you can change the perception of things and you may not be the one who's fooled, but as your kids are reared in, in, in steeped in this language, they're gonna learn new definitions the ideologues' definitions. We've got to fight for certain things. What does the word binary mean? There's that word bi, bicycle. Binary is simply this. It relates to or something that is composed of or involves two things, i.e. male and female. We live in a culture that says binary is out. There's a lot of gray, not much in the way of black and white. Black and white would be binary. Instead, we've got shades of gray. Everything can be laid out on a continuum. What does biological sex mean? Well, as we use it in this message this morning, we're talking about the physical characteristics that differentiate male from female. It's evaluated by our chromosomes. It's evaluated by our reproductive organs. We're talking about something that is biological and physical. Now that's important to understand because when we get to the issue of gender, here's where the real battle is. At one point to ask somebody, <laughs> you wouldn't have asked somebody because it was just so obvious, right? You knew when you looked at someone who had a, who had a beard and short hair and big shoulders and talked in a deep voice, you knew you were talking to somebody who was a male, that was their gender, and that was their biological sex. That was obvious, it remains obvious, which is why some of you are still shaking your heads, going, I, I can't figure this out, there's a new language, there is. Our culture looks at gender today in, in, in kind of two distinct ways. On the one hand, they talk about a set of social expectations, all right, their perception is that gender is something that is created by and defined by the culture, by society at large. It's not something that is, it's something that's fluid and flexible. It's not an oak tree, it's a weeping willow. It can be bent. And so if it's nothing more than what the society puts on me, then I've got to fight back against that. So we would say, for instance, that, 
that gender a lot of times is, is defined by somebody's roles or social norms. It's right that a, a, a boy perhaps likes to play with squirt guns and a girl might prefer dolls. That would be the kind of thing they're talking about. And they're saying that that influence is not right. People should be free to choose. God can't define my gender. Humanity, society cannot defend my, or define my gender. I define my gender by how I feel, which leads us to the second way that, that gender is spoken of in our culture today. This is what they're really getting at, is it's how does a person define themselves? And they view it as, as fitting on a broad spectrum with male on one end and female on the other, and you might, you might feel a whole host of different things as you live your life on this planet. Your gender today may not be your gender tomorrow or in six months. So how a person views himself or identifies an internal sense or impression of who I am is how I define gender. I saw one website, actually I saw a number of them that offered 112 different genders. And I read through about 48 of them before I couldn't figure it out anymore, I was just spinning. And it would be funny if it just weren't so tragic, the confusion of that, because these folks, folks, you know this, or at least you should know this, you understand this, right, as a believer that, that casting uh, jokes their direction, uh, that, 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 that demeaning people is never winsome, it's never right, it's never effective. May the Lord keep us from that kind of attitude. We of all people ought to be the most compassionate. The confusion is real. And we keep thinking people are just kind of playing a, a, you know, a game with this thing. And, and it is true that they're, we'll talk about that in a minute, but understand this, that a lot of this is, is very sincerely felt by people. Can you imagine the confusion of thinking that I have this very fluid gender thing that just, uh, you can never really pin it down. You start teaching that to five-year-old kids, which they are, it's tragic. So when we talk about gender identity, we're talking about somebody's internal sense this is the way the culture talks about it. A person's internal sense of who they are, which might be male or female, might be neither male or female, but it certainly doesn't have to correspond in our culture's eyes to any sort of biological reality. That's why they talk about the gender spectrum. You should know the word cisgender which again, I don't know who's creating the definitions, but most of you, I suppose, are cisgender. That's when your biological sex and your gender identity, remember they're viewing them as two separate things, independent things. When those two align, then you are cisgendered. And if they are not aligned, you might be existing in a state, and this is our last definition, of gender dysphoria. It's, it's the idea that there is this conflict between the distress that is experienced when someone of a gender identity finds their identity is, is 
is different from their assigned biology. So I'm a man who feels like a woman or a woman who feels like a man or any of the other 112 different genders that I guess there are. And again, that distress is real. It is real. You're hearing that? It's real. Suicide rates among transgendered people are something like 21 times that of the general population. I read reports of upwards of 50% of transgendered people tried to commit suicide in the last year. Much of this community is massively confused and when the culture, this is why this will put some pieces together maybe, but you, can you see that if, if the culture will go along with what they're feeling, it would help them to feel normal. But because the culture by and large at this point doesn't go along with all of that, there's just constant confusion and a raging battle. And that's why there's so much posturing for terminology and redefinition, and that's why you have a bill like this bill in Canada, which again, we've already passed here in 2012 in California, which says that counseling people according to biblical truth about their gender is illegal. You must protect it by law, because do you see the rates of suicide? Do you see how, how hard it is for these people to get on in society? The problem is, is that as they're trying to pass laws to solve this, they're not addressing the real issue. In fact, they've got it all backwards. This posturing for terminology and redefinition is is nothing more than, again, raising a fist at God and against objective truth, and God and objective truth is the only way out. Repentance from the things that they hold is the only way out of, of where they're stuck. Well, we've got to keep moving. The point is this, it's not really complex, is it? There are two genders, male and female. And again, I want to say it one more time, we are not denying that people in a sinful and broken world feel these things, that they are very uncomfortable in their body as male and female. But this is just the point, isn't it? We don't live by what we feel. We live according to the creative design of God as male and female, and we seek to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Again, as I was reading through, I, I read a number of interviews with Caitlyn Jenner. And Caitlyn Jenner joined Twitter with this quote. He writes, I am so happy after such a long struggle to be living as my true self. According to Bruce Jenner, he, he, he'd struggled since he was a youth with feeling female. People Magazine says this, quote, she finally felt seen for who she really is. That's the point I want you to understand. Jenner says, I'm so happy after a struggle to be living my true self. People Magazine, she felt seen for who she really is, holding her driver's license with her photo and name, Caitlin Marie Jenner, 
was an emotional experience, she revealed. Though Jenner also admitted wondering what Caitlin will do in her new life now that she was finally living as her authentic self. Again, Jenner, the most important thing in life is that you are true to yourself. Now, I haven't read People Magazine maybe since the last time I was in a doctor's office years ago. <laughs> so I had to catch up on all the latest stuff. And I guess Kane West is married to Kim Kardashian, who is Bruce Jenner's, Caitlyn Jenner's. You get the confusion already. But it, it, Kim was having the, I, I just want you to be in the know. Kim was having the hardest time with Bruce's transition. And it was Kane who came alongside of Kim and summarized it perfectly. He said to her, and this is what moved her from being in a place of struggling with this to embracing it, he said to her, I'm nothing if I can't be me. Do you hear in all of those statements that it is truth rests with the individual and nobody can say anything about it? You've got to be true to yourself. Beloved, we may feel gender dysphoria, as they call it. But we don't coddle it. We don't nurture it. We don't explore it. We judge it. We judge it according to the truth and the plumb line of the word of God. We judge it as wrong. We judge it as evil. We judge it as inconsistent with the will of God for our lives. And at times when you say that sort of thing, you will get pushback saying, how dare you? Why should I have to live like that? And the answer to that question is, because we all have to live like that. We all do this. I may have a feeling that I want a third helping of dinner, but that would be gluttonous, which is sin. And so I tell myself what? No. I judge that desire. I, I may wish to have a new wife. Or I may be drawn to many women. But I have to tell that desire, no. That is not God's will for my life. I may wish to neglect my responsibilities and sit around and do nothing. But I judge that as evil. And I say, that is sloth. God gave you this day. He's given you a functioning body. And he has called you to honor him with that body. Do everything that you do as unto the Lord. And you cannot be slothful unto Christ. I may feel angry, really angry, and want to take vengeance on somebody. And that vengeance might last for years. That drive to want to punish somebody. And yet what? Vengeance is the Lord's. Leave room for the wrath of God. I am not to act in vengeance, so I judge that desire. We all have to live this way. Right and wrong and true and false are revealed in Scripture, and Scripture is binary. 
It is binary. It is male and female. These are the words you're going to find all over the scripture. Father and mother, brother and sister, bridegroom and bride, husband and wife, aunt and uncle, king and queen, prophet and prophetess. This is just the way it is. And if you want to break the binary, you're going to have to completely rewrite history and redefine the human language. And that requires devoted activism, and that's exactly what we see in our culture. Those who are seeking to make God into his own image, and they undermine the truth, and they are seeking to deconstruct everything in our social order. Here's the point. There are not 112 genders. There are two, male and female, and that by God's design. You can't even escape it if you tried. You understand this, right? I, I brought this up last week, but all of the hormone therapy, all of the cosmetic surgeries, all of the clothing and all of the adopting of, of mannerisms, all of that, beloved, is just a masquerade. All of it is just a thin veneer. All of that, as I said, is is just a facade that has to be propped up. And we should come along these folks and seek as compassionately as possible, speaking the truth in love, to put away the masquerade, to deconstruct the facade. To take off the veneer and reveal what's really there Because the Bible is clear that he created them male and female. In fact, the word goes so far as to say that not even, those distinctions between male and female shouldn't even be blurred, right? Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. God made you male or female. You're to embrace that to the glory of God. You are to embrace it. Well, just like gender, marriage too belongs to the Lord, and this brings us to our second clarifying principle. Marriage is given to one man and one woman for one lifetime. The first clarifying principle, he made them male or female, there is but two genders. The second clarifying principle, marriage is given to one man and one woman for one lifetime. We're back in the book of Genesis in verse 24 of chapter two. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the next leg on our stool. And I will not develop these next two at the same length. As I said, you know them already. This is just by way of reminder we want to set these things in concrete. Marriage is a gift of God that was given not just to Christians, but was given to the whole of mankind. It is a grace of God to humanity. And again, though, by its very design and by its very definition, it is a covenantal union between a biological male and a biological female. This text 
that we just read appears five times in Scripture, and that's notable. When the Lord says something five times, we should be paying attention. The first time is here in this text. The next four times are all in the New Testament, which is also instructive because what that's telling us again is that these are not things that are, that are out with the old. These are not things that went away with the old covenant. These are things that are creation ordinance. These are things upon which not only does the Old Testament stand firm, but so does the New. In other words, the New Testament authors and Jesus himself are drawing on the original blueprint. Marriage is something that God has given, and marriage is something that God accomplishes. And that's a very important point if you haven't thought that through. Marriage is something that God has given, but marriage is also something that God does. I did a wedding yesterday and I told those groomsmen and, and, and those bridesmaids when we gathered together to pray before our rehearsal, I reminded them that what we were doing was holy. And I told them this, I said, you know, I've officiated a lot of weddings, but I have never married anyone. I've never married any couple. Do you understand that? I can officiate something, but God is, it's what God has joined together. I didn't join them. God does it. And that's a very important thing to understand. See, Jesus affirmed it all again back in Matthew 19. Male and female, man, what, was joined to his wife, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. What was accomplished in heaven, nobody on earth should, should seek to undo. A lesbian couple may hold a ceremony, they can exchange vows, they can give one another rings, they can have a California wedding license, but the reality is they could never, ever, ever be married because marriage, by definition, was not given to lesbian couples or homosexual couples. Marriage, not only that, is something that God does, so even if someone on earth were to hold up the facade of a homosexual wedding, the reality is because it is God who marries people, God does not bless that union and he will not marry two men or two women. It was just a couple of months after Jenner's coming out in 2015 when the Supreme Court of the United States declared that same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. And the court made this decision by a 5-4 majority deciding that same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. The problem with that, again, should be obvious to you. This is what I keep saying. Understand the undercurrent. The problem is that no human court has the authority to rise up above God's court to fundamentally redefine what God has already defined. Listen to the Chief Justice Roberts writing for the minority. Quote, the majority's decision is an act of will, not a legal judgment. What's he saying? We never looked at the Constitution to try and determine the constitutionality of this because this isn't a constitutional issue. 
These were judges legislating from the bench. The majority's decision is an act of will, not a legal judgment. The court today not only overlooks our country's entire history and tradition, but it actively repudiates it, preferring to live only in the heady days of here and now. So well put. Over and over, the majority exalts the role of the judiciary in delivering social change. If an unvarying social institution, and by that he means marriage, he says if an unvarying social institution enduring all over recorded history cannot inhibit judicial policy making, then what can? In other words, if the court deals like this with marriage, which the world respects, where are the boundaries? What's going to inhibit us from just redefining all of life? Beloved, the reason that marriage is what it is is because God has defined it. The reason it's accepted all over the world is because God has written his law in the hearts of men and men have enough common grace to know that man and women go together, that they're complementary, that that should be for a lifetime, that family is the foundation of society. These things, again, you know them. I'm just trying to affirm them in your head so that you can stand on them with both feet and with your head up and you can speak with grace and compassion and love the truth of the word of God. The highest court in the universe has determined that marriage is between a man and a woman and no other court can say otherwise. No man and no society, no legislature can twist what God has made straight. What does God say about same-sex unions? Well, we have the smoking ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah as a very early visible representation of God's holy hatred of sexual sin. We have Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And in that chapter, that is just one among many shocking and shameful prohibitions. Leviticus 20 and verse 13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed detestable acts. We saw last week in Romans chapter 1 where homosexuality was referred to as against nature, degrading passions, men with men, women with women, committing indecent acts. And we could look, we will next week at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10, that these sins are blatantly sinful and they are worthy of condemnation. And there is a homosexual lobby, beloved, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who are trying unsuccessfully at this point to, to reinterpret these passages. You need to know that. There are many churches, and in all likelihood, there will be more in the future who fly a rainbow flag. And you've got to know that they are seeking to reinterpret and redefine these passages and limit them so that there is enough room for monogamous homosexuality in the church. That is the line of logic that says that as long as I am with one man and one man only for life, then God's good with it. I mean, love is love and we just shouldn't bat an eye. Listen, that is against scripture. That is not true. 
And I really need no more than to simply read the verses I read to you and say this to you, remind you of this, that sin is not something that happens, what, as an act, first and foremost. It's at the level of our heart, isn't it? It's at the level of our desires. And to even crave things like this are sinful. Monogamy isn't the issue. The issue is the corruption of our desires, whether they be homosexual or heterosexual. Let's come to our third clarifying principle, and it is this. Sex, and here I am talking about the act, is God's good gift to a husband and wife alone. Sex is God's good gift to a husband and wife alone. Not only does your gender belong to the Lord and marriage belong to the Lord, but your body belongs to God. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, that is to Adam and Eve after they had been married, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I want you to hear me here because this helps us take the log out of our own eye. This humbles us. Too often the discussion of all things sexual, it is the transsexual and the homosexual that gets singled out as those who are sinners before God. And I will say this to you this morning, I believe it is absolutely true, that the vast majority, the vast majority of sexual sin is found in the heads and beds of heterosexuals. This world is awash in fornication, in adultery, in sexual abuse of every stripe. It is awash in the cesspool of pornography. It is nothing short, beloved, of idolatry. Sex has taken a place in this culture that God never intended it to be. This culture looks at sex as though it is the ultimate thing. God is the ultimate thing. Sex is a good gift to husband and wife. Sadly, each of us is a sexual sinner. All of us are familiar at some level. We are also guilty of the very things that the Scripture prohibits, aren't we? At least at a heart level. You all remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount saying you shall not commit adultery and you know that most of the people probably sitting on that grassy hill patted themselves on the back with congratulations that they were they were not an adulterer they'd never been in the bed of another and yet Jesus what says to them that if you even look upon a woman with desire you committed adultery already in your heart I would remind you that just because something is mainstream It does not render it less evil. Now, it may surprise some of you, maybe fewer of you in this day than 50 years ago, but it may surprise some of you to know that that God, again, was the one who invented sex. It was part of his plan. It was his idea. You ever think about the fact that he could have made us to, 
you know, to get all our chromosomes aligned down the middle and just split into two like you watched in, in your science classes. What a drag, right? What a drag. He, 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 he could have just made each of us directly like he did Adam and Eve. He could have just hung out in the dust box and put together each one of us, just day by day, making people. He, he could have made reproduction as simple as a handshake. But he didn't. God is good. God is inventive and wonderful and exhilarating. God is something. And he made sex wonderful and worthy of being treasured and worthy of being protected. And parents, you had better demonstrate to your children in the things that you teach them, in the polite pat on the tush, that this is right and good. Who do you want to teach your kids all of these things? A culture that is utterly defiant of God and rebellious? The church has been too quiet for too long. And we need to do it the right way. The Bible, the Bible is very delicate. The Bible speaks clearly but delicately. It uses discretion. You should do that with your children. But your children should grow up thinking to themselves, sex is good. Sex in its right context is wonderful. I can't wait to get married but there should also be that light at the end of the tunnel for them. Help them understand the day is coming when you can rejoice in that thing. It will ease their angst. The Bible does not blush to speak of this marital joy. The Lord created sex for the purpose of pleasure. The act cannot be accomplished apart from pleasure. Of course it's for pleasure. And he created it for procreation in marriage. And it is designed to reflect marital unity that is shared by two people who have been joined as one by God. They are now what? One flesh. They can be naked and be unashamed. That is a great and glorious truth. Not one amen from the midst. That's amazing. That's all right. You, you're blushing. Listen. The church, as I've said, has erred in its articulation of this. Roman Catholicism came to teach that virginity was the height of holiness, that celibacy was superior to marriage. And it came down through history and through the church that eventually the way to view sex is that it was sort of a necessary evil in order to populate the earth. That's a sinful view of good of God's good gift. And it was the Reformation again that changed all of this as people finally went back to their Bibles and began to read the Song of Solomon or began to, 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 to read the book of Genesis for themselves and they began to see these things that are so crystal clear. It was the Puritans, really. It was the Puritans who most carefully defended the purity and the sanctity and the necessity of the marriage bed. Listen to Puritan William Gouge. He says that husbands and wives should cohabit, quote, with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. They do err who hold that the, that the secret coming together of man and wife 
cannot be without sin unless it is done for the procreation of children. I put a quote up this morning. I don't know how many of you look at those quotes, but we really do work to put up things that we think are good. This author writes, quote, the bed is the heart of the home. The arena of love, the seedbed of life, and the one constant point of meeting. It is the place where, night by night, forgiveness and fair speech return that the sun may not go down on our wrath. Where the perfunctory kiss and the entirely ceremonial pat on the backside become unction and grace, it is the oldest and friendliest thing in anybody's marriage. The first used, the last left. And no one can praise it enough. David Powlison summed it up. He says, in sum, the Lord has a highly positive view of sex and he has a highly negative view of immorality. Powlison is just echoing the teaching of Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Literally, that text reads this way, honorable is marriage among all and the bed undefiled. Do you see how backwards our culture is? Marriage is on the decline in this culture at breakneck speed because it is not honored. And the bed is defiled constantly. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Note this, for fornicators and adulterers, and he's not talking there about homosexuals or trans, transgendered people. He is speaking about heterosexuals who are sleeping around outside of God's definition and designation of marriage for husband and wife. Beloved, there is no shame in sex God's way. There is no shame in the marriage bed. I often tell couples in premarital counseling, what you're seeking to do is recover as much garden as you can. The evil one has corrupted the glory of the garden and you're seeking in your marriage to recover just that by the grace of God. It is the only lawful sexual relationship in the Bible. A biological male, a biological female who are joined in the covenant bond of marriage. Every and all other sexual expression is both sinful and destructive and God will judge it. Who could quantify, as I thought about this, all of the misery and destruction that has been wrought on humanity because of the abuse of this good gift? But I will say this in the same breath. Jesus can redeem that. And he can cleanse you of your past. And he can make your marriage bed a garden of delight, even where sin has been.
Look to him who washes away our sins as far as east is from west, as high as the heavens are above the earth, who has cleansed us through and through. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of every speck of unrighteousness. Live in that reality, sexual sinner. Live in that reality. Rejoice in what God has given you, yes, and rejoice in the reality that he cleanses us from an evil conscience and he can cleanse even that. Now, I want to say one more thing before we wrap up, and we are going to wrap up right now. And it's this, something that needs to be said. Did you see those words, brothers and sisters, be fruitful and multiply? That is a commandment. And sex, while pleasurable, by God's good design, is also given to us with the crystal clear intent of procreation as God allows it. Children are a gift from the Lord. It is God who gives children. Not everyone will be able to. And we feel compassion for those who can't. But understand, again, this is something that our culture is treading on. Birth rates are dropping dramatically. Now, you would never know that at this church, which I rejoice in that. You young couples, bless you. Excel still more. It's awesome. (laughs) Blessed is the family that is full of children. Blessed is the church that is full of children. They are not an inconvenience. They are not a hindrance. They will not keep you from your best life now. Your best life is in heaven, but the best of earth, really, if God allows, you can talk to almost any parent I know. There is so much joy bound up in children. Why would you, why would you live in such a way as to deter your joy? So you can have a a chunk of metal with a shiny paint job and a nice hood ornament? A bigger house? I just, I don't get it. Now, I could go on a long time right now because Susie and I are empty nesters, and I got to tell you, we would parent a thousand lifetimes if we could. What a joy children are. What a blessing. That text, of course, lays the foundation for the family unit as well, which is another thing that Our culture is just seeking to hack away at. Well, this is it. This is foundational, ground floor, biblical, sexual ethic. A, God created two sexes, two genders, male and female. He created them. B, he gave to them and to humanity the gift of marriage on a biological male and a biological female who are joined together in covenantal relationship In marriage for life, he has given the good gift of marriage. And finally, see, God created sex and he gave that gift with joy to every married couple for the purpose of pleasure and procreation. If you've got that, you've got your ABCs of a biblical sexuality down. There's a lot more to be said, but that is the framework. We will wrap up this little mini-series, Lord willing, next week. And Father, what a great truth that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to make the lame to walk. And Lord, it is those who are spiritually poor, 
those who realize they have fallen short, those who acknowledge your high and holy standard in your law, who realize by looking in that mirror that we have mud everywhere. It is those who then look to Christ and who are then promised to be cleansed. Lord, we thank you that you cleanse sinners. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot offer ourselves to you in any way, shape, or form that credits our goodness. But Lord, goodness comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who lived perfectly, who lived righteously and gives that righteousness freely to all who would come to depend upon him. Lord, I ask for those who are perhaps struggling in the areas that we've talked about today that they would be willing to hear what you've had to say, the clarity of your standard. Lord, you have not spoken in long sentences and complicated words about these things. They're simple. We pray, Lord, that you might humble them and set them free even this day. And Lord, for the rest of us sexual sinners who have failed you in this arena so many times, Lord, again, we come and we're grateful that you receive repentant people. And we confess to you our frailty, and Lord, we confess to you our hypocrisy and the things that we stand on, and yet the way that we live, Lord, the contrast is great, and we, we know it, and we come oftentimes, Lord, burdened by guilt and shame. We come distracted and weighed down with our sins, and we thank you that you are a God who forgives them as we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ who bore every stroke that we deserve. Thank you for the gift of sex. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for gender. Thank you for male and female. Lord, these are your things. We thank you most for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the promise that all things are being made new and we will one day know the garden in its fullness as we walk in perfect fellowship with you. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you.